one of the differences between doing a meditation retreat in a monastery as opposed to doing a meditation retreat in a meditation retreat center is that a monastery has that um, atmosphere that comes from the fact that there are people living in the monastery who have a long-term commitment to the Buddhist path of practice. Uh, it's just a fact that if you go to a retreat center, do a 10-day retreat, you may get many teachings on the techniques of meditation and a very good structured course, uh, disciplined atmosphere and so on, all of which is very helpful. But often the retreat centers are, you know, there's a sense of just a temporary passing through of people. Often uh, also not necessarily that much Buddhist ritual because often retreat centers are more uh, non-religious and that's good also. Maybe people from many backgrounds, religions, cultures can try out a re meditation retreat without without fear of being converted <laughs> or um, getting too caught up in Buddhist ritual. But obviously a monastery is a place where Sangha lives and trains, practices. Sangha are those who've made a commitment to uh, renunciation. And this quality, renunciation, uh, the Buddha gave the word nekama, uh, sort of means without, without sensuality or without the goal of sensuality, as in sense pleasures, as in in a monastery, the aim of living in a monastery and training and practicing meditation is obviously not to acquire a lot of sense pleasure. Hence, in a monastery, there's uh, very few entertainments, music, TV, movies and things. Life is very simple. In one main meal a day, and just quiet living in the forest, simple routine. Everybody wears simple uniform, and the monks wear brown. Those lay people practicing in the monastery wear white. Uh, many people shave their head. All of this is part of renunciation, as in just setting aside some of the concerns we might have for the world and the pleasures of the world and making money, accumulating wealth. Uh, because the Buddha pointed out that as an end in itself, that will not never liberate us, never bring us to the end of suffering. Even if you accumulate a huge amount of wealth, become very, very wealthy, you'll probably still find, if you haven't practiced the Buddhist path, trained your mind in 
sila and samadhi and panya, you probably still get stressed, irritated, still have uh, different kinds of suffering arising, even if you are very, very rich in this world. Because simply accumulating uh, wealth in itself does not yet guarantee a peaceful mind. Often people associate uh, peace or happiness with wealth. And it's true in some sense, if you have very little or almost no wealth at all, then you probably would be concerned to get some more. If it means you haven't got enough to eat or a place to stay, then obviously accumulating a bit more wealth is important. So I'm not saying uh, wealth in itself is, is a complete, um, is a problem or a cause of suffering. Obviously it can end our suffering if we have no wealth and to have some wealth ends our suffering. However, it's and not an end in itself. And yet the world, people in the world often feel that it is and think in that way and behave in that way. And we see that when we come into a monastery and people are practicing renunciation, it's going in the opposite direction. You know, rather than, say, coming to the monastery to make money, you come to the monastery to give away your money <laughs> or rather than coming to the monastery to get things you tend to come and give away material things you support the monastery um, rather than coming to the monastery to seek out a lot of um, pleasurable experiences in the worldly sense you know to see a lot of nice sights hear a lot of interesting sounds um, and so on. Here we come to the monastery and there's not a lot of particularly pleasant or attractive sights, sounds, tastes, smells and so on. And you go to the shopping mall for that or you go on holiday to uh, Brisbane or the Gold Coast or something for that, don't you? you? You don't come to the monastery for a lot of sense pleasure. So the monastery is going in the opposite direction to much of our worldly existence. And we're not here in the monastery to accumulate a lot of things. Even on the mental level, the Buddha didn't encourage us to seek a lot of refined special experiences of mind. Um, that isn't to say that you might not have some. As you come into the monastery and especially on a meditation retreat, we hope that you do experience some peace, some happiness of mind. Maybe some experiences may be more special than you've ever had before. Sometimes it's like that. But that's not actually the goal of the practice. As the Buddha pointed out that the nature of the human mind is such that it's already, we say, you might say pure and peaceful in its essence already. And we don't have to add anything on in our life. We don't have to accumulate or gain any special experience or anything extra um, to be happy. 
Rather, what we do in our Dhamma practice and our meditation practice is clear away all the obstacles to experiencing the peaceful mind, the happy mind. So clearing away all the obstacles that have got in the way, covered over our mind, caused us confusion, stress, uh, and different problems in our life. So we don't actually go, have to go and find anything or get anything. Really, it's more like clearing up what's there, what's come in, into the mind, covered it over, until we get back to the original pure mind, which is already there for us to experience. Except for most of the time, we don't experience it. And that's why we have stress and suffering in our life. So this is an important point because one, it gives us a lot of, uh, you might say, hope in our practice in that we don't have to try and find some special experience or some special knowledge from somebody else or outside of ourselves, from a god or the gods or angels or from some superior force or anything like that. Uh, the Buddha's path is more just cultivating your mind so that you can see more clearly what is there already. So in terms of experiencing peace, it's peace that comes just through clearing up your mind so you understand things better. And by understanding the truth, seeing the truth more clearly, the mind becomes more peaceful in itself. So it's a bit like uh, you have a pond, say, and you have a pond and over time your pond gets all kinds of um, moss and algae and those sort of green slimy plants that creep in from the side and gradually cover over the whole surface of your pond until one day you look at your pond and say, oh, my pond is really messy. And if you're and you can't see the water, you can't see the bottom of the uh, pond. So one person might think, oh, to have a nice pond, I'll have to go somewhere else and get another pond or dig another pond. But the Buddha's way is actually, well, keep working with your own pond, but what you have to start doing is clearing away the moss and the green slimy plants that are covering over the surface of your pond until you get back to the clear water and you clean up your own pond. So you're just going back to what's there already. Uh, even the very highest goal of the Buddhist practice, what we call Nibbana, and experience the end of suffering, the end of birth and death, the end of stress, pain, the highest happiness, even Nibbana, the Buddha said, it's not something you have to go and look for, hunt for elsewhere, outside of yourself. Nibbana, in effect, it's already there. We just, haven't, we just don't notice it. And we don't find it, we don't realize it. So we're constantly falling into stress and suffering. A lot of fun today at the monastery. Yes. Some people come and don't want to listen to Dhamma. <laughs>
Nibbana is already there, the Buddha said, except for we have to get back to it. He, one thing he said, it's like a bit like even the Buddha wasn't born experiencing Nibbana. The Buddha was born like us. He had a body and a mind. He probably had different kinds of stress in his childhood and youth and grew up as a young man he married he had a kid and you can imagine he probably had similar difficulties and issues to face to us so he wasn't a Buddha from the word go he didn't experience Nibbana from day one of his life but he said what a Buddha does is through his own efforts he didn't have a teacher cultivates the mind, cultivates his wisdom, puts forth great effort and energy to investigate truth, understand the mind, ultimately to bring the mind to a complete understanding of the nature of this universe and thereby purify his mind or free or liberate his mind from suffering. And he compared that to like somebody traveling through the jungle, very thick jungle, and they're traveling through the jungle, going back. Uh, eventually they cut a pathway through the jungle and find like an ancient city. So it's an old city that's been there for thousands of years but got forgotten about. Everyone had forgotten it was there, or they might have. There might be a legend about it that it exists, but they don't know the way to get there. But this one person, they cut their way through the jungle, put aside all the uh, creepers and trees, until they can find this old ancient city. And that's like the Buddha practicing to the point where he realizes the Dhamma. Get back, gets back to the Dhamma. As he said, the Dhamma exists all the time, whether there's a Buddha or not whether there's people meditating or not, the Dhamma is truth. So necessarily the truth is there all the time. It's just whether we realize it or not, whether we notice it or not. So the Buddha went back through the forest to this ancient city, that's Nibbana. He's cutting back using his wisdom, using his effort, mindfulness, all the different qualities of a Buddha till he finally broke through the jungle to get back to the ancient city. So in a sense we're doing the same, even though we're not the Buddha, we're disciples of the Buddha, so in fact it's easier for us because he's already given us the, the teachings and the path. But we're doing the same sort of thing, we're going back through our own minds to see what, what is what, what is true, what is false, what is suffering, what is the end of suffering, you know, ex to experience that, realize that. So this is why a monastery is, uh, you know, it's a simple place and not a lot of distractions where you pra practice renunciation, uh, we practice harmlessness as well, we, we give up the right to kill in a monastery so we don't kill even little bugs that come to bother us have to find other ways to deal with the little bugs we use repellent or we brush them away or we just practice patience with little creatures 
And obviously with each other. In a monastery we practice harmlessness with each other. We don't fight or have conflicts. Um, we practice uh, contentment with what we've got. So like everyone's come on retreat and they've got a tent. You don't have to worry that when you go back to your tent somebody else has pinched your tent. You know, maybe another meditator saw your tent and thought, oh, that's a really big, super five-star tent. I could do with that. <laughs> In the monastery, we don't steal. We don't take what is not ours. We practice contentment. We practice uh, trustworthiness with the possessions of others. Uh, can't guarantee other people outside the monastery practice in the same way, but at least in the monastery we practice like this. So we don't steal or take things from others or uh, bother or damage other people's possessions. And we also, in the monastery, you know, the heart of renunciation is we practice celibacy. So even when married couples come to the monastery, it's a time to separate for the practice of Dhamma. You know, we meditate, we listen to Dhamma, we do the activities in the monastery, but not in the sense of one who's married or with a boyfriend, girlfriend, with a partner. It's not a place to seek a partner. The monastery is a place where we practice celibacy. We practice like we're Brahma gods. And they use the word for celibacy, it's a brahmacharya. The brahmacharya is the holy life. So even if you're on eight precepts, uh, on a meditation retreat, you're practicing the brahmacharya. You're living like a brahma god. So if you're celibate, you're as if a brahma god, completely uh, beyond sex <laughs> for the time you're in the monastery. Once you appreciate that, it makes life very, very peaceful. We don't have to think about that side of life. We can start to understand it more. We all have uh, sexual urges, we have emotions, we have desires. But we practice restraint in the monastery. We watch those desires arise, pass away, but we don't follow them. In the monastery, also practice restraint of speech. So, you know, it's part of renunciation. You're renouncing unskillful speech in a monastery. It's as if we're giving it away, not to somebody else. You're not giving our unskillful speech to someone else or back to someone else. We're just giving it up. Uh, so, most of us have some unskillful speech habits sometimes. We complain or we, when we're upset we often say things we regret. Sometimes we exaggerate the truth or say something that's not quite true and so on. Often in daily life, you know, especially in our social relations or in work, our speech can be, we speak very fast often without thinking and often we have Sort of split-second decisions with sort of protecting ourselves or want to get some advantage or we're upset so we want to get back at someone so we often say things that are not really skillful 
but a monastery because the environment is very peaceful and everybody is uh, committed to the practice we can be more feel more relaxed more free not to have to follow those kind of speech habits and one can be perfectly honest in a monastery one doesn't have to lie so you know somebody asks you your age you just tell them oh I'm this age <laughs> There's no social conventions or social pressure that maybe force you to sort of feel, oh, I can't tell them this, I can't tell them that. <laughs> because a monastery is a place dedicated to understanding truth, you know, going deeper in your life beyond the, the social conventions that might lead you to you know, say a few white lies or even black lies and so on. And it's also a place where we're dedicated to harmlessness and learning to respect life, respect each other, respect others. So our speech is reflecting that. But obviously it requires effort and mindfulness to train in right speech or skillful speech. Because often our speech just kind of pops out without much warning. Uh, many meditators have come to me and said, oh, I've been on retreat. I meditated all day, very quietly, sitting, walking meditation. And then when I met this person, I don't know where it came from. All this stuff came out of my mouth. <laughs> all this unskillful speech just popped out of my mouth, like uncontrollable. Where did it come from? And sometimes it's like that because we can't always maintain the right conditions you know, when the conditions are right, maybe skillful speech, we can do it. If nobody's bothering us very much, we're quiet, getting on with our own practice, okay, well maybe we can be quiet or just say a few words. But maybe we meet an old friend or an old enemy <laughs> or somebody and it just sparks the mind and suddenly all this stuff comes out. So right speech is a practice in itself and it requires mindfulness and wise reflection. So a very good place to train in right speech in a monastery, you can, because you're in a place that's fairly quiet, you're spending a lot of time meditating through the day. You know, but at the end of your day, you can do a little review and just see um, what have you said since you first got up in the morning through to when you go to bed at night. What have you been saying? Can you remember everything you said? Who you spoke to? What did you say? The things you said, were they skillful, unskillful, true, false? Even that for many people is already too difficult just to remember the words you've said since you've got up in the morning through to the end of your day. Especially if you talk a lot, quite difficult. You really have to sit and think. But in a meditation retreat, it might be possible because you're not speaking so much. And you can use it as a time to reflect on your speech. And sometimes you might realize well, some of the things we say maybe not necessary. Uh, or we probably say more than we need to about certain, certain subjects, certain, certain issues. You know, we, a few words might do, but we make a lot of words. Or sometimes just don't need to say anything at all, but we just out of habit, we say something. 
and so on. And a lot of misunderstanding, miscommunication and stress comes in life through our speech or not being mindful of our speech. So it's an occasion to look and learn from our own speech for ourselves while we're on retreat. And obviously that takes you inwards to your mind, your state of mind, because you know, everything you say, you must think first. It must have been a thought. You must have had the, the words pop up into your head first. And things about our life to do with this person or that person, our work, and so on. It's all been thought of before, before we say it. Even though sometimes it seems very, very fast and you can hardly see the relationship. But when you practice mindfulness, you're going back, looking at your own mind more closely and you can see, well, what you say is reflecting what you've been thinking. Luckily, we, we have the ability to restrain ourselves. So a lot of what we're thinking, which is probably not very good, we don't say. <laughs> Otherwise, the world would be a much worse off place. Imagine if everybody spoke out everything they thought in their mind all the time. There'd be no peace left in the world because often we have a lot of uh, negative or unskillful thoughts but luckily we've learned how to restrain them. You know, so <laughs> someone was telling me there's a, a movie out about these guys who hate their bosses uh, I don't know what happened in the movie, but that must be a very common human experience. You have a boss at your work, and you know, sometimes the boss tells you to do things you don't want to do, or they have a character you don't agree with or like. And you probably have all kinds of thoughts come up about your boss, but you never say them, because obviously you'd lose your job or get in trouble. That's just one example. Uh, maybe another example, you know, if you live in a relationship, your partner or married, you probably have many, many thoughts about your partner which are not the best, but luckily you don't say them. Uh, sometimes, because we're mindful enough, we know, oh, yeah, I can't say that, that would be a terrible thing to say. So we work it out for ourselves and we give up that way of thinking and then we don't say anything. But you can see if, if you're, you keep thinking in a certain way over and over and over again, then there's an increased likelihood that you might speak it out, say it out. So again, on a meditation retreat, you're having a good chance to really look at your own verbalizations, the thoughts that pop up into your head, and the quality of your thoughts, how skillful or unskillful how wholesome or unwholesome they are. And you can start weeding out, filtering out some of the more unskillful things you might be thinking that you can see are causing yourself some misery or stress and would also, if said out as speech, would cause harm to others. What you notice when you practice mindfulness and say in a retreat situation, you're practicing right speech, being very careful what you say, how much you say, the sort of things you're talking about. Um, you'll notice a lot of the verbalization, the intention to speak that comes up, because we're not following it through and actually saying anything, 
what happens next then if you have a thought come up and you're going to you're thinking oh, say you have a thought about another person you go, oh I don't like that person but you have enough mindfulness to say oh, I'm not going to say anything I'll just just let this one go so what happens to that thought you'll probably find is it just fades away from your mind and that's how we practice sila you restrain your more negative tendencies of body and speech and then those very tendencies those thoughts intentions those habits fade away they're weakened obviously in another situation they might arise again but if you keep establishing mindfulness and observing for yourself and you you're clear with yourself oh this is a negative thought if I act on this or speak on this it will lead to some suffering or I'll regret what I do maybe somebody else will be harmed you can see that clearly and you just let that thought go you don't act on it you don't say it you might become very clear in your mind and just see that that's just an impermanent impulse or reaction in your mind that you don't have to follow it just fades away so this is actually leading directly into what we call vipassana meditation where you're seeing the very impermanent nature of your thoughts and your moods your emotions and the practice of sila and renunciation helps you to do that as you establish a limit or a restraint around your behavior which you don't cross you make a decision uh, with yourself and you say I'm not going to cross this line so I won't um, say rude things or abusive things maybe or I won't steal or I won't fight or whatever that's how Sila restrains the mind gives us the opportunity to see the impermanence of our negative emotions negative mental states obviously as we deepen our meditation and practice then you're seeing that in all meditation in all mental states all thoughts all intentions are ultimately impermanent but the good ones we don't have to just let go the good ones we can look after preserve them bring them up more so you know, a thought of kindness which might lead on to kind speech kind action well that's not something you have to let go of necessarily it may be something you can bring up and develop more um, and act, you might well act on it or speak out with kindness but still your reflection is also well this is still an impermanent impulse of mind you can see that much but it's also something that's uh, to be developed and not to be abandoned or given up so we're not giving up everything in the monastery we develop the good and we abandon the uh, the negative or the unskillful and this is where the practice of mindfulness comes in in our daily life we have to be watching over the mind to to really learn from our experience what is skillful and wholesome that should be developed and what is more unskillful unwholesome that should be abandoned in the buddhist path this is what we call right effort you have effort to abandon negative thoughts negative speech negative actions and the effort to develop and bring up positive more skillful thoughts uh, speech actions 
you can see how this uh, affects our meditation. If you're really trying it to be, develop mindfulness and look after your mind, be restrained in your speech, your actions, it's not always easy. You know, sometimes you have a lot of different emotional states come up. It's not always easy, but you can see the the effort you make there has a very powerful impact on your mind. We say it's a very strong, wholesome karma when you're learning to restrain and let go of your negative tendencies. And you know, sometimes very, very difficult because life can be very challenging. It's sometimes things don't go our way. That's the nature of this world, isn't it? We don't always get things going our way. The people around us don't always act or speak or do things the way we want them to. Uh, our own meditation might not even go the way we want. Yeah. External conditions don't go the way we want sometimes. Yeah. The weather is unpredictable. People are unpredictable. Our mind is unpredictable. So that unpredictability brings up challenges. You know, we get reactions and then we want to sometimes we react with an emotion to a situation. We want to say it or do something based on that negative emotion. But if we can develop more awareness, more mindfulness, then we're actually really doing ourselves some good because maybe you actually can change some habits. You know, habits that we might be recognizing in ourselves. Like, mm, this is something I've got to try and get a handle on or do something about at the very least can develop more of the restraint, more of the external restraint, so we don't do something that later we might regret. You find in a monastery, this is a place you can really do that and you get supported in that, as other people are practicing as well. I remember when I first went into the monastery in Thailand, I came from the UK and in the UK, we always complain. British people, they complain a lot. I went into the monastery in Thailand and I noticed myself, I'd complain about things quite easily. Oh, it's very hot, or a lot of mosquitoes, or having to wait a long time for something, or something, you know, you just complain about ordinary things. But then I noticed many of the other people around me in the monastery practicing, they didn't complain. They experienced exactly the same situations and problems that I did, but they didn't say any complaints. So that, for me, that was one of the first things I was learning is, that, oh, you don't have to complain about everything. Sometimes you just watch your mind, you watch the complaint arise, but then you restrain yourself, you don't say anything or do anything. You just watch it pass away again. And after a while, you can see, oh, this is quite a purifying process. You, know, you just watch your own mind, things come up, but you don't have to act on them, follow them, and then you pass away again. The alternative is if you act on every complaint you have in your mind, then you, know, you become like a lawyer or something, and you go around constantly complaining about things and st sticking up for your rights and become very legally minded in your life. And it's always saying, oh, these are my rights, and no, you can't do that, and you have to negotiate on everything. And the mind can be like that, it can be like a very kind of tough lawyer. 
But in terms of mental health, that's not always the best, is it? It's not always the most peaceful kind of mind state. You're always battling for your rights or uh, complaining about the injustices of the world. Sometimes those injustices are things you can do nothing about. If if it's something completely beyond your control, sometimes the best, the wise thing to do is just let go, isn't it? Not not to follow the complaining mind. We just accept, oh, can't do anything about this. Might as well let it go. And then usually we find we can tolerate much more than we thought we could. You know, we can tolerate different levels of discomfort that maybe we didn't realize before. When I first started meditation, I could only sit on the ground for a few minutes and then the pain was so intense I had to get up. I literally couldn't sit for more than three minutes without having to get up and uh, sit on a chair or just go away. So my first meditation sessions were just full of complaints in my mind. Why do they make us sit so long? In those days in Thailand, the floor was uh, concrete. And when you're in white, just join the monastery, you don't get a cushion or a mat or anything. You just have a little white piece of cotton cloth, as thick as your trousers, a little square of cloth. You put that down on the concrete floor and then you sit. And the sitting meditation sessions were easily as long as these. One hour, sometimes many more hours. And uh, you just had to learn. You either sit there complaining, being very, very miserable and unhappy. Or you start to restrain the complaining mind. You see it, you 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 could bring up the complaint, like the lawyer mind might sort of put a hand up at the back of the hall and say, do you know we're sitting here on the concrete, hurting a lot? I mean, I don't know who you would tell. I guess you'd tell the senior monk or tell somebody, you know how bad it is down here? (laughs) But then you sort of realized, uh, following that way, it's not going to get anywhere anyway. Nobody can change the fact that it's a concrete floor and there are other people sitting on a concrete floor. Or if the, uh, the monk was giving a long talk, you, know, you could, could imagine yourself following the complaining mind. You might stop and say, do you know you're giving a very long talk here and I'm sitting on a concrete floor. Maybe you could shorten it a bit. <laughs> but you don't do that. <laughs> you go the other way. You say, mm, maybe I can see if I can do something about my complaining mind rather than uh, shortening the length of the Dhamma talk. And what you find is if you can start seeing the complaining mind, letting go of it, rather than sort of indulging it and following it, then little by little your mind starts to sort of become a bit more spacious. And sure, you might still have some pain or discomfort, or it's hot or whatever, but the negativity in your mind diminishes because you're not following it, you're not indulging it. What you're seeing is that you don't have to identify with every single thought that comes up in your mind so strongly. You don't have to follow or believe every thought. Or we say you don't have to take ownership of every thought in your mind. 
you know, when we're not very peaceful or mindful, we tend to believe everything that our mind throws up. And we, as if, take ownership of it. We identify with every thought. And that's largely how we experience stress. And we follow every thought. We grasp hold of it. But when you start to practice meditation, you can say, well, you don't have to follow and hold on to every thought. You can allow thoughts to come and go. And they might still come up and bother you, but you don't have to identify strongly with them. You can just sit back and watch them. This is the quality of mindful awareness directed to your own mind. You just watch the mind and maybe a complaint comes up, but it comes up and then it goes away again. And little by little you're eroding this sense of uh, ownership of your mental experience. So you might have some pain, you, know, you can't always get rid of the pain, but how you think about it changes. Instead of grasping at the pain, and say, oh, my terrible pain, I hate this, oh, why do I have to sit so long? On and on it goes, you know, the negative mind. You start to look at it more just as oh, there are these negative thoughts that arise, but I'm not going to feed them or hold on to them. I just watch them arise, pass away. And then the actual pain itself, the feeling of pain, might become much more bearable because you're just knowing it for what it is without reacting to it or complaining about it or having an argument with yourself about it. And this is what mindfulness practice does. It helps us to uh, step back a little bit from our different emotional states and particularly the negative ones that cause us so much stress and suffering we can we can see them and gradually let them go on their way rather than keep feeding them and the Buddha pointed this out he said he said you can free your mind from any negative state if you try hard enough if you're willing to work with your own mind you're willing to develop enough clarity enough mindfulness keep directing it observing your mind, looking, watching. Little by little you can free it from all kinds of stress and suffering. If we couldn't do it, he wouldn't have taught it. The Buddha wasn't, uh, wasn't ignorant. The Buddha understood human beings. They do have this ability. We have this ability to understand our own minds better, to understand them and change them for the better. We have that ability so little by little you can see when you do manage to establish mindfulness and let go of some negativity the result is your mind feels much more calm inside much more relaxed more happy if you've done it once then that happiness is something you can remember you can keep going back to you can find your way back to that happiness a second time or a third time or a fourth time so that's what they say, that the human mind gradually, if you keep practicing, you know, it's a chance for you to evolve or cultivate your mind. They say, through the practice, gradually letting go of the negativities, gradually the mind becomes happier, more content in itself, and naturally becomes more generous, more compassionate, more com kind in itself. They say it become, becomes the mind of a deva, devata. They talk about manusa deva. 
So a human being in body, but a devata in mind. A devata, that's a, you know, an angel, a heavenly being, is one who has managed to give up the complaining mind, amongst other things. And they've managed to see the harm, the suffering of that, and say, oh, I'm not going to follow this negativity anymore, I'll just let it go. And naturally, if you let go of negativity, then uh, more wholesome, skillful states will flow into your mind. And more of the kindness, the generosity, the mindfulness, the wisdom will flow in. So as we practice, you'll see what there are those times where you feel very happy and calm, relaxed in yourself. And the mind is more like the mind of a deva, manusa deva. This is something we can all experience uh, through our own efforts. Uh, keeping the precepts, practicing mindfulness, being very patient with our own minds and with the, the conditions around us. If we keep putting that effort in, little by little our, our mind will start to settle down. And you might say the level of your mind improves or rises up a little bit. So I've talked uh, quite a lot for this period, so I'll leave it there for now. Um, those of you who are going home, you can take a book outside. We have some books on meditation, feel free. And for those of you on the retreat, please feel free to carry on meditating. And we have our group meditation four o'clock in front of the hall. But for the next few hours, you're free to sit or walk as you wish.